What's up, gang? Happy uh, leap year, leap day. Uh, happy February 29th to you. This is uh, a slightly belated edition of Whiskey and Water, but uh, a good one nonetheless. Uh, we've uh, we've saved it for you for a couple weeks as we've been traveling around uh, the western part of the U.S. and, and just made our way into the Midwest uh, for some very busy, super fun, packed fly fishing film tour shows. It's been a blast uh, thus far. Certainly the most fun tour uh, I can I can remember. And uh, a fantastic lineup of films. And uh, super psyched to share those with you guys. And it's been kick-ass to see so many of you out there and, and get to rap with you along the way. And we got to rap with uh, one of our filmmaker friends, Travis Lowe, uh, while we were in Seattle, uh, West Seattle uh, specifically. This interview was recorded the morning after uh, our first ever show in West Seattle at the Admiral Theater, sold out. Uh, it was a blast, super fun crew, super fishy crowd out there, a bunch of fired up anglers, and uh, huge thanks to the uh, folks at Emerald Water Anglers and, and the other uh, fine fly shops in Seattle for uh, uh, helping support that first ever show. We will certainly be back to that neighborhood. But uh, right now we're going to talk uh, finding Fontanellis and uh, hang out with our, our friend from the North Country, uh, Canuck extraordinaire, Travis Lowe. Enjoy. We've got Travis Lowe here uh, on... Uh Whiskey and Water. I don't even know what episode this is. I think we're on uh, number five now. We've had a little hiatus as uh, we've been prepping to take the fly fishing film tour on the road. And we're almost two weeks into the tour and have made our way over to uh, the Emerald City. We're in Seattle. We're over in West Seattle at Emerald Water Anglers. A very cool fly shop in a great part of town. And Travis Lowe has joined us all the way from the Great White North. Thanks for coming down, Travis, and, and uh, kicking it with us a little bit. Oh, thanks for having me on the show, Ryan. I always try and get down to Seattle. I want to thank uh, Dave. Dave standing by. Actually, he's sitting by. He's a little bit uh, hung from last night's event, which was absolutely stellar. And somewhere in the background is uh, Moldy Chum himself, Brian Bennett. But uh, thanks for having me on the show, even though it was kind of my idea to do this. That's right. I do we a lot of self that's flagellation and you know uh self-promotion well we appreciate it we're uh any extra motivation we can have to uh do this kind of stuff is always appreciated and yeah we had a uh show last night our first ever uh show in west seattle and uh at the admiral theater and dave mccoy has been on my case for about two years to do a show over here. He's like, man, you guys got to do a West Seattle show, got to do a West Seattle show. And I was like, eh, I don't know, it's kind of like suburbia. Is anybody really going to come? And uh, sold out, packed. Packed. It was a, it was a great time, um, super fun. At the fun. Admiral Theater, really a, a cool venue. Yeah, yeah, it was killer, man. I mean, um, there might have been some folks that thought they were, you know, they came for Kung, Kung Fu Panda and stayed for uh, the flight. It was a tough tour. choice going in to buy tickets. I was like, Kung Fu Panda, F3T, I had to weigh my options, and then Kung Fu Panda was sold out. Yeah, well, made made your decision easy. And uh, then we were uh, overserved a little bit. Um, I, I don't think it was our fault. I, I blame uh, uh, the wait staff after yeah. it. Yeah, well, there was somebody seemingly running around from some rod company buying shots for everybody. Mm -hmm. There was. I don't know. Uh, yeah, South African gentleman uh, was uh, 
handy with the with the shot glass for sure. <laughs> Yeah, that's right. <laughs> that's what we like. And uh, well, man, we folks got a chance to see uh, Finding Fontanalis last night, which is uh, your latest project. But before we get into the story of that film, uh, give us a little bit of your background. Like, you know, how'd you end up here and, and uh, how'd you get into uh, production to begin with? Well, I went to school for film and television uh, 27 years ago in uh, just outside of Toronto. And uh, you know, I work as a national network news cameraman, and I'm a video journalist. So my background is in film and television. And every day, Monday to Friday, I work for a television company and make news. And so my job, you know, as I shoot a story, and 50% of the time, not only will I shoot it, I'll write it and voice it. So I, I basically do a, a two-minute little documentary on news every day. And you know, I've been a passionate angler for 20 years. I haven't fly fished all of my life. I didn't, wasn't born into it. I don't have a particular, uh, you know, uh, historic breed or anything like that. I just picked up uh, fly fishing when I moved to British Columbia from Toronto, which is the center of Canada. And uh, you know, I, I kept those two things separate in my life. I didn't want filmmaking and that television thing and my fly fishing passion to come together, and and primarily because I was worried about the outcome that it wouldn't be good enough in my eyes, that I wasn't going to be capable of making what I wanted to make. So I kept them separate and I would fish and, and I would do my work. And I, and I did other projects, you know, like uh, corporate videos and stuff for people. And then, um, and then something happened that spurred me to it, uh, which was on my own home river, a, a woman who I used to work with, who worked for CBC Radio, uh, which is kind of like NPR radio here in the States. And she called me up and she said, are you aware of what's going on in, on the Kettle River? And I, and I said, no, what's going on? And I, and I was completely oblivious that the local ski hill had put a, a water license request in to take 400 million gallons out of the, the only place that I fish, uh, which was my home waters. And I was like, no, this is news to me. And right there and then, that was my motivation. I figured the only thing I could do to, to put a stop to what was going on uh, you know, was to make a film about it. So I started making this film about it. And, uh, and then that kind of spurred on like this whole thing where I started a, a, a TU chapter where I live in order to save this river, which is one of BC's most endangered rivers. And that's where the filmmaking process came together with the fly fishing. And then uh, as a result of that, I started to be asked to do other projects. And that's kind of where that developed. And, and then now has led to this. What are some of the other projects uh, that you uh, that you did after you got into it with the kettle? Well, the, the the film that everyone would probably know is anyone who went to the F3T was the the Taiwan on film that I did with the guys from uh, Montana Fly Company, which was kind of this excursion into the jungle where they were trying to set up a, a world class fishery to help the local Karen people, uh, and the money from that was going to towards you know education for these people. I mean, these people live in in nothing, you know, no electricity, no running water. It, it's fourth world uh, situation there. And so uh, they invited me over there and, uh, and when I got over there, I was gonna do a corporate film for them, you know, mostly about what MFC was all about. And uh, they said, let's go fishing for Masir. And then they started telling me about this thing they had going. And I was like, well, we need to make a film about that. That's cool. Like, I'm always looking for a story, you know, and if you don't have a story, I think it was Steven Spielberg who said, if you don't have a story, you've got nothing to say. 
And so I, I try and always make sure that there's a story to tell, and I thought that was a, a kind of an interesting yeah. story. Well, and you, you uh, that film was uh, when we started to see um, more storylines, um, you know, make their way into the film tour pieces now, you know, uh, other filmmakers certainly are, are doing uh, a, a better and better job with, of that all the time. And uh, with, with your background and your experience, you know, um, you nailed it with that one. And, and, and it's such a cool fish too. Like the, I, I, that was, I'd never seen or knew anything about Masir and, uh, and Omnivore, you know, yeah. th th those guys were using like, uh, <laughs> they, like these plums cherry bombs they called, right? And the, so there's this tree called the Madua tree and it um, basically drops, you know, like a silver dollar sized red uh, fruit from it. And these fish sit underneath these trees and wait for the things to hatch. And they're green at the beginning and then they turn red when they ripen. And they just devour them. It's like throwing candy out there. And so these guys from MSC had these women that they have in the, in the fly shop, uh, in, in, or actually in the factory in Chiang Mai where they do a lot of their ties. I mean, it pretty much all uh, ties are, all flies are tied in, in Chiang Mai. I mean, there's seven factories or eight wow. factories over there. It's kind of what they do. Mm -hmm. uh, they had them spinning these deer hair balls up with re dyed red deer hair, like, a, you know, I don't know, man, like the size of your testicle. <laughs> <laughs> and you threw these things out on, the, on a fly rod and, um, they would either, you know, just destroy them or they would come up and just turn and thrash their tail on them and to see what would happen to that. And then they would take, and a lot of the, and we hadn't really found this out or developed this until I started looking at the film closely when I got back to North America and saw what the fish were actually doing, that they would come up, smash their tail against it, and then wait to see if it got yanked with even just a little bit of pressure on the river, they had already gotten wise to angling. You know, so it was, it was kind of a neat thing to see when I got the, the, the footage back to North America. Yeah, and it's beautiful, man. I mean, just the, the, the location and, and the fish. I mean, um, you know, small water, yep. you know, huge, huge fish and small water. Uh, Some really big fish background. there, like up to 50 pounds. Wow. Yeah, yeah, it was, a, it was a really, really neat experience. You know, I'd never been to, to Asia before, so and that's one of the things about fly, fly fishing filmmaking and just fly fishing in general is, is like the places you can go. Like I never would have imagined, you know, that I would be standing on the street in Buenos Aires and just like looking around and enjoying this and think, you know, it's fly fishing that brought me here. Mm -hmm. That's really cool. That's one of the things, it's one of the perks. I mean, a lot of people say, a lot of people ask me, well, you, do, you, do you fish when you, you make a film? And, and the answer, to, my answer to that is no, I, I don't fish very often. I may. I don't pack a fly rod, I pack lenses and cameras, as mm -hmm. you know, most guys who do this will tell you the same right. thing, whether it's a, a photographer or a filmmaker, you're there to work, and if you don't do it while you're there, then it's only going to be a problem from you, for you in the end, so the majority of the time you spend out there, there's an old film saying, it's, it's on location, not on vacation. Right. Yeah, for sure, you know, I throw a fly here and there, and, and, and quite often people, you know, they realize that... Uh, you're working really hard, they save a nice fish for you. So I get my one crack, but, but you, I usually blow it. But uh, there's not a lot of fly fishing involved in a, making a film, especially if you want to have a good film right. where you want great cinematography. You have to like set shots up. It's a lot, it's, lot, it's filmmaking. It's yeah. sit around and wait. Right. Wait for the light. Well, wait and for then, the I mean, the, the 
getting fish and weather and uh, you know all the natural elements to to cooperate. I mean, there's it's probably even more painstaking than um, you know a, a standard film shoot where yep. you've j you're just trying to wrangle people. Mm -hmm. A lot of people and they, and when you tell them that like uh, like you want to make a fly fishing film, cool. Let's let's do this. Let's here's a story. Let's do this. And then you say you got to tell them like there's not going to be a lot of fly fishing involved in this. You're not just going to run out and go willy-nilly and you, you got to wait till I'm set up before you make that cast. For a lot of people that they, they it, it's upsetting they can't do it. They want to get yeah. out there and pound the water. I mean, no it's, doubt. it's there right in front of them and they don't want to wait until I get the right lens and pull focus. <laughs> so for the last couple of years you have been working on uh, one film in particular. One uh, film. Yeah. And uh, the uh, the, the film tour cut, the, the festival cut is, is currently traveling around with the Fly Fishing Film Tour, um, putting the pieces together for an extended film that Patagonia is going to release yeah, later full, this year. A full length feature film, so generally speaking, anything over 40 minutes is considered a, a full length feature. We're, I think the, the full length feature as it sits now on my computer as a rough cut is about an hour and 20, an hour and a half. And uh, we'll work, try and will that down to about an hour uh, cut and that will be released sometime in the fall of 2016. There's no actual, you know, hard release date yet. So a handful of folks uh, have have seen Finding Fontanelles, the festival cut, and, and many more will here in the coming months. But uh, uh, give folks an idea. How did this whole thing start? How did you end up making a brook trap movie? Yeah, well, that's a good question. Brook trap. You know what? Uh, the one thing that you know when we started started talking about this idea was that I, I didn't really think brook trout was an overdone species, you know. Some species, you know, really get a lot of coverage and I could only think in my mind about one of the movies that um, had been done in Labrador. And uh, so I thought, yeah, brook trout, that, that's cool, you know. And they're, you know, absolutely beautiful fish and just like a joy to look at. I mean, they're so colorful. Um, so what happened was uh, a friend of mine who, who is Bart Bonim, and he is the uh, director of Fish at Patagonia. He'd gone on a trip with a photographer named Brian Gregson, and they'd been invited down to a lodge uh, in the Rio Pico area of Patagonia, Argentine Patagonia, and uh, they had done a shoot for the women's catalog. Patagonia was launching a women's uh, a line, and they'd gone down there, and they they got some models out of Buenos Aires, and they'd shot a whole bunch of still photos for the catalog and then they went and took a couple of days fishing as you know everybody's most likely to do and they went into this phenomenal brook trout fishery river that um, Augustine Fox the owner of the lodge had heard about from a local gaucho a guy who lives next to him and he kind of had kept it in his back pocket for about 10 years he'd had this information he'd never gone in and explored he'd gone in and walked around through the area looked at how hard it was going to be to get in there and thought, you know, I'm probably not going to bring the, my average client in here. This is going to be something special for someone who's really in shape and someone who really wants to get in, you know, and he didn't really know. The guy had called it uh, the place with the big red fish. And uh, so when uh, they went down there, they went in there and explored this place. And then they went one day, they hiked in, they hiked out, and they fished for like three hours because it took so long to get in. And Gregson, Brian Gregson came back with some absolutely phenomenal, phenomenal Bluebird Day beautiful shots. And uh, one of those shots was, you know, a stellar fish that uh, Dexter Lewandowski landed. And uh, there was some great shots. And one day, uh, lo and behold, I was looking at the chum, moldy chum, 
And their uh, slab of the month was this huge brook trout. And I was like, wow, that thing's huge. And I knew that Dexter was on the trip. And so when Bart returned, he, he called me and, and I said, yeah, so lay it on me, man. Let, what, what happened down there? And he said, yeah, he gave me about a 15 minute, you know, Reader's Digest version of stuff. And I said, well, what's the, you know, what's the story on those big brook trout? And he was like, oh, there's no story there. And then he proceeded to, I looked at the phone call afterwards. We were on the phone for 45 minutes. 30 of minutes of that phone call was him telling me the story of going into this river and catching these massive brook trout. As soon as he shut up and, and stopped talking after 30 minutes of telling me this story, I said, we gotta make a film about that. That's a story. And, and that was three years ago, March three years ago, and we kinda, that's when the wheels started rolling about. Well, let's look at how we can do this. And then uh, when it's really started getting going, I went down in my basement where I keep all these old fly fishing books and I started looking through books to do research on brook trout and learn more about the species. <clears throat> and I came on this old book that I bought in like a public library sale where they get rid of their shitty books called Brook Trout. And it was written by a guy named Nick Karras who has unfortunately passed on now. And in there, there was a chapter on the world record brook trout, 14 and a half pounds, caught by this guy named J.W. Cook who was a physician in Thunder Bay, Canada. And he'd uh, gone to the Nipigon River and caught this giant fish, but there was this myth surrounding it, whether or not this, uh, that he'd actually caught this fish or he was actually drunk, you know, on, you know, having a few, you know, celebrating cocktail hours with a few of his buddies because they were on a guided trip. And as, you know, five o'clock comes, most people do, you know, as you know, Shut down, celebrate cocktail hour, wait for the meal to be made. And these guys, these guys were proper gentleman anglers, right? And we're talking tweed and uh, leather fly wallets. It was 1915. And there was a bit of a rumor that this guide had gone out, borrowed his fly rod, and caught this fish. And I just thought, that is fascinating shit, man. That's a great backstory. And when I found that story, I knew that we had something, a framework to build an entire film around. We would go to Argentina, see if we could find a new world record. If we found a new world record, who, that was never important. There's a backstory to tell that was really fascinating, historical, kind of um, you some Ken Burns-ish, you, yeah. know, you know, still told with black and white photos, back and forth between people who would talk to people who knew something about it, whose cousin interviewed some guy on the reservation who was there, you know, the day the fish was caught. And, uh, but the really interesting thing was that Augustine Fox had invited all these people down there because he had this crazy notion that he wanted to start the world's first national fly fishing park. And he wanted the people from Patagonia to come down there and listen to his plan. And, uh, Augie, as, as everyone calls him who knows him, is just like this unbelievable Argentine character that it, when you get around him, it's hard not to get caught up in everything that he has going on. And uh, so we went down there with this notion that, you know, let's go down there, listen to what he has to say, and see if we can help him start the world's first national fly fishing park. And so on, the one, on one of the trips that we did, we brought down Yvonne Schwinnard, who is on the board of directors for a foundation called Conservation Patagonica, which is Doug Tompkins, who's now passed away, and Chris Tompkins Foundation, and they've started two national parks, one in Chile and one in Argentina, conserved over 2.2 million acres of Patagonia. And we went to them for advice uh, about how to do this, and that was kind of the whole premise of the film.
What's um, when 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 he says national fly fishing park? What uh, what would that look like, or what is the the ultimate goal there? He wanted to protect some this a couple of drainages near the Rio Pico area, and uh, and just make sure that nothing ever was going to jeopardize that part of Patagonia. And uh, we think about Patagonia and think. You know, there's nothing going on down that place. There's no people down there. It's not, nothing could possibly threaten that place. You know, it's, it's like, you know, you always hear this story. Oh, it's like Montana was 100 years ago or 50 years ago. But it's not true. There's a bunch of threats down there that are no different than your own home river. Mining, forestry, dams. I mean, the Argentine government is damming the only river in the world with a known run of steelhead from the Atlantic Ocean. And... So the threats are common, and they're just like any other threat. I found the same threats in Thailand, you know. Uh, so he wanted to save and conserve an area that uh, it was really important to him. And really, it was just an idea. We had no idea what it was going to look like. But the film developed an idea. And in the film, the film follows uh, Augustine as he figures out sort of how to start this. And he and on advice from Chris Tompkins in the long form version mm -hmm. of the film, he starts a foundation on his own called Foundation Truches Patagonia or the Patagonia Trout Foundation. Mm -hmm. And uh, so the way we worked that was he started that foundation and he's gonna start to try and save this area of the Rio Tigre it's called, where the brook trout are, and then expand that. So it was like, first of all, the vision was this giant overlapping, you know, we can do this big national park. And then we, everyone realized that that was insane crazy and the way to do it is to take small steps and save one small piece and so what Bart decided was that he would go and ask James Prosek who, who started World Trout uh, Initiative with uh, Yvonne Schwenard 10 years ago to paint that fish that is Dexter Lewandowski's fish and it's gone on the back of a World Trout t-shirt for next year and will raise funds to save you know uh, trout around the world that's awesome and uh, I, we have a handful of the, the teas that we've been giving away at the show. Yep. And they're beautiful. And, and that's James, Dexter's James, fish on that shirt. Oh, that's cool. I didn't yep. know that until yep. now. That's, um, uh, I'm sure he'll, uh, he appreciates that. I know he was a little bummed that uh, he wasn't on the return trip. He came back from uh, um, Patagonia and was like, man, this, we, we caught some massive brook trout. And he's like, I think there might be you know, kind of a film in the works. And then... Uh, the return trip happened when you know he had to work. Had to. Yeah. Um, yeah. It, it. You know his fish. Honestly, in the film we go back. It's his fish that started that whole that whole thing. If it wasn't, if he never caught that fish, none of this would have ever happened. Wow. I mean, and ultimately it was the ultimately the the whole thing started in a friendship that's that is dealt with in the full film between Brian Gregson and Augustine Fox. And Augustine would come up. Um, during the off season in Patagonia, he would come up and visit his clients in North America during our summer, and he ended up uh, on the Henry's Fork, needed a place to stay, and Gregson, you know, just a warm-hearted guy, is like, you can sleep on my floor. And Augie slept on his floor, and Gregson taught him the in and outs of the ranch. You know, fine tippets, small flies, you know, delicate presentation, dry fly, wait for a rising fish, you're completely different than how you fish in Argentina. And Augie had never seen that before. And so there, a friendship was formed, not unlike, you know, a lot of friendships are formed in angling. I mean, mm -hmm. we meet the best people, 
in our sport, right? Because they're like-minded individuals. And that was one of the things that I wanted to capture in this film. And in the long-form version of the film, you, you get to delve into that. We shot on, we, you know, we shot on the Henry's Fork with the two of them about their friendship and talked about how their friendship formed. And then it was an invitation from Augustine to, to Brian to come down and fish in La Papa so he could show him how they fish down there. And that uh, invitation snowballed into, I'll get Bart from Patagonia. They went in down there, got in that one fish. When I heard the story, I was like, let's make a film about that. And then this whole thing kept going. And, and that's been three years now. You know, Mar this March, it'll be three years. So take us th uh, through the, the first trip, because how many times have you been down now? I've been down there three times okay. for this. And then, uh, you know, we shot in, um, I, think, I think we shot in seven states. We shot, at, I shot in uh, Nipigon, Ontario, so the, the backstory for a week there, spent a week there. Three trips to Argentina, Florida, you know, California, Oregon, Montana, Idaho, and just a couple of scenes in British Columbia that are, are just ancillary scenes. And when you guys first went down there, um, or what trip was it that, that we've seen in the, in the festival cut where you, you gotta really work to get to the spot? Yeah, that you was got that, Yvonne that's and Bart the first tow. trip that I went on, so that would be the in that in that would be the second trip for everyone else. But that was the first trip we went out down to to film on, and we brought Yvonne Schwenard down with us. And uh, I mean, we took <laughs> way too much gear, way too much gear. There was cameras, drones, jibs, and we had to you know lug all this stuff, and we had no idea what we were doing. And, and that is the that's the scene that you see in the uh, the festival cut. And that was really what happened on that is that. Um, you know, Bart caught a really, really nice fish, and and then, you know, that kind of inspired uh, Yvonne Schwenard and Augie to go look for another fish. And then the last day, uh, they went down, pushed the raft because it's funny because you got to push the river's really slow. You got to push the raft in a lot of spots, and you got to push it back up too. And uh, they went down and they fished into the darkness, and they came back, and all they had was a photo. There was three photos on uh, Augie's iPhone of a 10-pound brook trout that Yvonne caught. You know, it was you know, massive, you know, like fish of a lifetime for, for anyone. And for people who are in normally in, in North America, specifically the U.S., who are, who are used to seeing brook trout, you'll never see a brook trout no, that big. It's like, a completely yeah. different animal. Oh, yeah. yeah. I mean, you talk, I've heard talk from guys from Maine and stuff on, on fly fishing boards, and they're like, you know, they're catching 8-inch brook trout, and they're beautiful fish, star-studded jewels, James Prozek will, will mm -hmm. say. Uh, but at 10 pounds, it's a, it's a different monster, these fish. And it was a female. So when we caught that fish, it was like, you know what? 10 pounds, 14.5, mm -hmm. that's mm -hmm. not that far. Mm -hmm. There's a male, it's gonna be bigger. Yeah. And, we, and that kind of set the whole thing, and that's why at the end of the film, there's the voiceover is that it kept the dream alive. And the dream was to catch the world record brook trout and to save the place. And so that whole scenario, you'll see in the full length, feature that's about the one quarter mark and then we'll go into the rest of the story which is you know we made another trip back in there and then I went down and by myself and shot in late April which is uh, late fall down there a run of brook trout in the Rio Corcovado which is the, probably the world's biggest and most prolific run of brook trout period end of sentence and I spent uh, six days diving in the river with those fish 
And the guys, the lodge had shut down and the, the guides were fishing and I would just dive. So basically, we go in, I get in a, a wetsuit and dive and film, dive and film. Float a run, get back up, walk to the top of the run, float back down. And by the seventh day, man, these fish knew who I was. You know, they were speaking to me. It was, they didn't move out of my way anymore. It was the most phenomenal, life-changing experience for me as I lost the desire to actually catch big fish. I want to hang out with them now. Mm -hmm. So I like the next thing for had me. Had you done that before? Had you? Yeah, in a, in a small scale, you mm -hmm. know, and, and not like over and over and over. So you know, I've dived, I've dived with sockeye salmon on the uh, Adams River in British Columbia, which is a pretty huge run of sockeye, and it's pretty cool. Uh, but not with trout, and not with that many trout, and not so close to them. Oh, so yeah, now I just want to get in and live in their environment and, and see what it's like. And that's always been a goal fishing and that's why one of the things I really like to do is fish Montana Spring Creeks uh, because I feel like you can get immersed in the trout's world it's a very small world you're a big part of a small world versus when you're steelheading I feel like I'm an infinitely small part of a massive world I have no idea where that fish is you know it's out there you know way at the end of a swing or something like that but when I see a rising trout 15 feet away from me in a small spring creek I feel like I'm immersing myself in that trout's world which I've tried, that's, that's the dragon I'm always chasing when I'm fly fishing. And so now having dove with those fish, I'm like, that's the way to get into where they are. It's like an evolution of, I wanna catch a fish, I wanna catch a lot of fish, I wanna catch a really big fish. Now I just like the places, the environment, those trout are found. Now I wanna just swim in that environment. Right, get as close as you can. Oh, yeah. And I think that's the, uh, the inspiration for a lot of people is like, you know, it sounds cliche to, to make that connection, but it is you, you want to you want to see what's in there. You want to have uh, just a little bit more. You're, you're kind of chasing this that that visual like where yep. what is it? What does it really look like under there? You know? That connection mm -hmm. be, you want. You're chasing that connection. I want to yeah. be connected to those fish. Mm -hmm. And yeah, what does it look like underneath there? What are they doing? And there's a guy on Instagram and uh, I don't know his first name. Somebody will tell me his first name is River Snorkeling is his Instagram handle. And he dives with fish, and he he advised me a little bit on diving with fish before I went down to Argentina, and um, he has like done the whole thing. He apparently doesn't even fish anymore; he just films. Super cool. That is cool. He's man. got phenomenal footage. If you're if you're on Instagram, you got to follow this guy. Cool. River snorkeling. River cool. snorkeling. Yeah. Um, speaking of. Uh, Chasing the Dragon, you're gonna finish up the film here uh, in the next few months, yep. and then what? What's the, any uh, new project oh, I'm gonna go back to my wife. <laughs> she remember who you are? She did, I got a very loving wife who supports my habit, but you know, she takes me literally when I say, I'm not gonna make another film, and, but she knows in another in a little while after that, I'll, uh, I'll make another film. But yeah, I've been absentee, and you know, I got a daughter who's gonna go into university, and uh, I haven't, been exactly uh, seen her in a while. It's been, it's all encompassing. I, I don't think people realize that. And and you know, for me, I, I film it, I write it. This one I didn't voice. I pick the music. I work with everyone, and I edit it. It's my. It's 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 like I get up in the morning before I go to work, and I edit. I go to work, I shoot, and I edit. I come home, I eat, I sit back down in front of two monitors, and I edit. And that and that's it's just. It's all encompassing. It's 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 a monster. Well, it's paying off, man. The the just what we've seen so far is Thanks. is fantastic, and and um, really looking forward to seeing the the full piece. And 
And it's cool to you know see where this thing has come. We heard kind of whispers of the project when it started, and and knew that uh, you guys were headed down there to shoot, but there was no real. Uh, I, you know, we had no idea, I don't know that if you had any idea where this was going to come and the scope of, of the, the film that it's we become. Were keeping it, we were keeping it on the, on the down low and yeah. uh, Patagonia is going to ramp that up when we get the finished product and there, there's a whole bunch of storylines that don't just like, I mean we ran around chasing Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid, we may have found their grave, uh, you know, we're, we're there, you know, in Florida shooting, shooting at the International Game Fish Hall, Hall of Fame, you know. You know, chasing down um, you know legends like Kurt Gowdy and uh, Joe Brooks, who were down in the right in the same neighborhood in 1964, making the first fishing television show ever. Yeah, that that uh, footage is is awesome. Isn't that sick? Yeah. The, yeah. yeah, those guys uh, and and uh, you know Brooks and you know, those guys fished the Corcovado and and Joe Brooks actually said in the book he said if there is a world record fish to beat. J.W. Cook's world record. He said it's going to come from the real Corcovado. Now we weren't fishing the real Corcovado. We fished a couple of days in it. That's, but it's general facility. It's all mm -hmm. that part of Patagonia, and there's massive brook trout throughout that part of uh, Patagonia. And uh, you know, everybody asks me where do I think the next world record is going to come from, and I, from, and I don't know anything about Labrador. I know that it produces high numbers of, you know, what would be considered just big big brook trout, like high numbers of five to nine pound fish. I don't think, and from what I've heard, it hasn't spat out a really big fish of late. The Nipigon River was destroyed by three hydro dams, and that's part of the story. The Nipigon River was like in, in 1887, it was called the, the world's greatest trout stream. It was absolutely prolific. People caught 50 brook trout a day in the river that were all five pounds. They, they used to stick them down at the town, at the bottom of town, in in giant cans, just kill them. I don't know what they did with them, dog food or whatever, but, mm -hmm. uh, but then in the 20s, then in the 50s, they basically put the death nail on that coffin, they put three hydro dams up on there. So that's kind of, we want that in, through the film to serve as a lesson that this is not what we want to happen in Patagonia. Right. And, and uh, in the film, we also go to uh, a guy in Oregon who has a PhD in brook trout studies. PhD brook trout doctor. And I talked to him about what happened to brook trout in the United States, and they've been decimated. Over 50% of their brook trout are removed from their natural habitat. We didn't talk, you know, there's a lot of talk about I mean, brook trout's got a bad rap because man put him in places where he shouldn't be, right? But where he should be, America's first trout over on the East Coast, you know, devastated. And um, I don't know where I'm going with that, but uh, there's a lot more things yeah, in this film, a long version of film. That you don't you get could have see. three different films with the storylines that you guys were chasing. Well, we're, yeah, and my job is, if you look at it, is like there's a whole bunch of circles in it, and my job is to make sure that all those circles connect and then finally come around and, and, and tie in. So we branch out and we explore different storylines, like the Butch Cassidy, which is a really, you know, really interesting story there. He went down there, they, they split, during, uh, you know, just before brook trout were actually introduced into Argentina. They may have been on the same ship that brook trout fry or eggs were sent down to Argentina on. Because the way they went was from Maine to England to Buenos Aires. And when the telegraph was invented here in the West, the way Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid 
used to get ahead was they would stash fresh horses, fresh horses in the next town. And that's how they evaded the posse when they robbed a bank. But when the telegraph was invented, they just telegraphed ahead to the next town. And the posse was running at them the other way. And they knew it was time to get out of Dodge. So they split and they went to Argentina. And they set up in a place called Choguila. And they built a ranch and they tried to go straight. You know, It was uh, at a place who was uh, the Sundance Kid's girlfriend. And it was Butch Cassidy. And the three of them lived on a ranch down there for five years before they disappeared. And wow. we don't know what happened to them, but we think we may have found their gravesite. We go to the gravesite and visit the gra this gravesite of two benditos Americanos, and that's all it says on the cross, no right? No way. Yeah, and, and they're in a book, in a, in a, a book called In Patago Patagonia called by a guy named Bruce Chatwin who traveled in the Patagonia in the 70s. He wrote this idea that he thinks that that's where Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid are. So we kind of go in and explore that story. Just one of the offshoots that we go in this film. So if folks want to go do a little exploring down there for themselves, what's uh, the name of Augie's operation? Las Pampas Lodge. Yeah, the, the plains. So he's based just outside of Rio Pico. And uh, Argentina, yeah, it's, uh, what a great place. Man, it is uh, on the short list. I've never been uh, south of Central America, and, and I would I would absolutely, I mean, the, the footage you guys came back with is is, is just gorgeous, and uh, I you know never had much inspiration personally to go um, chase big brook trout down there, but uh, certainly have uh, stoked the stoked the fire there for sure. They got big everything down there. Yeah, everything's big. Oh, that big shot reds. of that rainbow is incredible. I mean, that ah. thing is so gorgeous. Los Faracos, they call them. So. All those guys, uh, I was going to say, they got big reds, they got big steak. <laughs> Everything's big in Argentina, man. They got big knives. The guy has <laughs> got huge knives. Big but bottles of wine. Big bottles of wine. And, and that's typically your lunch. That's what your lunch is. It's like two bottles of wine, then you have a nap, and then you go fishing again. That's your, you know, Argentine lunch. But, uh, yeah, those fish, the Los Faracos, um, those fish come out of that lake, and they drop back uh, to, uh, to dine on brook trout eggs. And those guys are in there, they're catching brook trout. It's like they're phenomenal big brook trout. They're going to be up like 10 pounds up in there. But they're bycatch for those yeah. guys. They want these steelhead-sized rainbows. They're massive fish, absolutely massive. And that fish that you saw get caught in the film, like I spotted that fish like four or five times. I got underwater, you know, I'm passing by him, and I'm like, you can see he's completely different looking than any of those other fish. Mm -hmm. And I was I actually popped out of the water one time and caught, told the guy, Martin, one of the guides, Martin Gallo, I was like, there is a big rainbow down here that's got to be north of 10. And I said, your stuff's getting hung up on the bottom. Shorten up a little. Floated down the run. Walked back up the run. Floated down, snorkeling. And I'll hear this giant, I hear this screaming through the water. And I pop my head up, and his rod is just doubled over, his reel's spinning, and I just see this silver bullet go right by me. So I, I got not the hookup, but I was fortunate enough to be almost right there when they caught that fish. That was pretty cool. That's a, that's a front row seat that yeah. uh, <laughs> not, yeah. not very many people have had, for sure. Yeah. Um, well, Travis, thank you so much, man, for putting in all the time and the work to make this film. It's 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 remarkable. It's certainly one of the best we've ever had in the tour, and um, look forward to seeing the full piece. And we got to cruise down to uh, downtown Seattle. We got another show tonight, so we're gonna go load in and, and kick it off. But uh, um, 
Hopefully, Down yeah. at the syphilis. Yeah, that's right. The syphilis. <laughs> the Seattle Inter International Film Festivalist uh, Theater in Queen Anne. Uh, but uh, thanks so much for making the trip down and hanging out with us. Well, thanks for, you know, uh, letting me do shameless self-promotion on whiskey and water. And uh, I don't know what happened to the whiskey. There was so to be some here, but I believe that Dave McCoy drank it all himself. Yeah, he's taking a little nap right now, and uh, he was supposed to, he was going to fetch us some whiskey, and but uh, you know, we we had we got enough last night. I got plenty last. Probably night. have a, a little good. bit more in our future. You know, I, I brought a spare liver down here, but McCoy stole it last night and destroyed it. Yeah, Thanks you're, for not, you're me. not getting that one back. No, I know. Thanks right, for having me. It's, yeah, it's, uh, thanks a real so much, pleasure man. to talk to talk to you about my film and thanks for uh, everything you guys do at the F3T. I like to promote it where I live and we bring it in and show it and, and people love what you guys do. So well, we couldn't, couldn't do it without you and, and the other filmmakers, man. We're, we're very lucky uh, to have such great content and, and uh, I know you're going to take a little hiatus, but we look forward to the next one.